Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, FT Alphaville's now frequently updated podcast. I'm Cardiff Garcia, a New York-based correspondent for FT Alphaville, and I'm joined by Izzy Kaminska in Geneva and the FT's investment correspondent Dan McCrum in London. Our producer, as always, is David Keohan, and our guest today is Noah Smith, an economist who teaches finance at Stony Brook University and writes at noopinion.com. We'll stick a link up on the site. And Noah is someone who has specialized in Japan and the Japanese economy. He lived there for a few years, and he goes back there to conduct research. He's going back there in a couple of weeks. So, Noah, you you wrote something before Abenomics really sort of um, got going, and what you'd written was that if you look at Shinzo Abe's past, uh, he's got these very kind of hardcore conservative nationalist tendencies, and I think what you wrote was along the lines of, okay, Abenomics is all well and good, but it's a means to an end. And I guess my question is whether or not anything has surprised you, um, given what you perceived uh, Shinzo Abe's motivations to be. All right. Um, Yes, I was uh, really surprised by something, but first let me say why I expected what I expected. In mid-2000s, you had Junichiro Koizumi, who presided over the first round of quantitative easing that Japan had. And did some of and did some structural reforms and things like that. The stock market rose. Japan's economy did quite a bit better for a few years. Uh, then Koizumi's term was up. He nominated Abe as his successor. Abe came in and almost immediately started reversing the structural reform moves that Koizumi had made, like postal privatization and other things. And so Abe came in and he showed no interest in economics. He appointed a bunch of guys that you know, said a bunch of mean things about women, and he focused entirely on constitutional revision. Nobody liked it. Popularity crashed, and he was driven from office in disgrace. So I thought, okay, so what he's going to do is he's going to come back in. He's going to try to do exactly what he perceives Koizumi as having done. He, he's going to try to talk about monetary easing in order to get a bunch of foreigners to come in, pump up the Japanese stock market like they did in the mid-2000s, drive down the yen, that's going to produce a little a fillip for growth, a little temporary burst um, of optimism and growth that's long enough to carry him through the July elections, at which point the uh, LDP will win a smashing victory in the upper house, and um, he will have the supermajority he needs to revise the Constitution and to finally achieve this dream that they feel that they're very close to achieving, which is normalizing the military. So that's what I expected him to to do, I thought it's just he's just talking. It's just a scam to trick a bunch of foreigners into buying Japanese stocks and selling the yen. And he he appointed uh, Haruhiko Kuroda as BOJ governor, and Kuroda really uh, surprised me with his extremely bold, aggressive program of quantitative easing and his 
you know, I, I, had, I had thought that Abe's government, you know, is dominated by the Ministry of Finance guys. These are kind of conservative old guys. They wouldn't let anything so dramatic happen, but Kuroda really did uh, make it happen. Um, and it remains to be seen if they'll follow through all the way. But certainly, even the announcement of that program was very was very surprising compared to what I thought Abe was doing, which is just mostly talking. Okay, that's interesting because some of what you just described obviously has in fact happened. The idea that foreigners would be the first to to come in and buy up equities, and that later on there might be uh, some kind of equivocation. I think a lot of people are worried that what we've seen in the last month um, is exactly that. But what what your argument is is that essentially the Bank of Japan would never have gone as far as it has gone. Uh, if it weren't serious about, I guess, reflating the economy and actually hitting that, that inflation target. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I think the Bank of Japan, in as much as it's the unified organization and Kuroda's in control, is serious. I think that, you know, um, the Bank of Japan is probably less independent than the Fed. And there are a lot of conservative old Ministry of Finance guys. And at some point, they might pull the plug on Kuroda. And they might, um, I mean, we saw what happened with the Fed tapering. This week, I think you could see something just like that in Japan uh, and pull the plug on the whole thing. So to say the central bank is serious, I think Kuroda is serious, but that doesn't mean that the system is serious. Okay. What about the, uh, the other two arrows of, uh, of Abenomics, the, the fiscal stimulus and the, uh, and the structural reforms? I mean, as, as somebody who's a lot more, um, I guess, uh, aware of and has a lot more knowledge of the Japanese political situation, I mean, what, what are the kinds of institutional barriers that are going to have to be overcome in order for that to take place, if, in fact, you're convinced that, that Abe is, is serious about getting this done? Okay, but first, briefly about the second arrow. It doesn't exist, I don't think. Um, too many people in Japan are worried about the deficit, and whatever fiscal actions they take are all about reestablishing the LDP's old connections to interest groups that they used to sort of pay off, and that then they sort of lost that pork pipeline when they were temporarily out of power. And just reestablishing those pork pipelines to their to their support groups. That's okay. that's what the second arrow is about. There's going to be no serious um, fiscal stimulus. So about the um, the third arrow is the really the one everyone talks about. Uh, you know, in terms of an arrow, it there's just so many vested interests in Japan that it's difficult to know where to begin. Um, when Abe gave his speech, talking about things like selling. Uh, prescription drugs online and things like that. It was very, very cosmetic stuff. I think that illustrated to a lot of people the difficulty, the, the amount of vested interest that's out there. But I think it's important to realize that it's not simply incumbent players in terms of corporations that don't want change and that want to... Obviously, there's some of that, but also what it is is that Japan's whole social model is a corporatist welfare social model, and people are incredibly ambivalent about things that would change that. If you really think about what would be necessary for structural reform in order to bring up the, the productivity levels of domestic-oriented industries, the non-export industries, you really start to realize what huge wrenching changes that would bring for all of Japanese society. And I think it's people, not just corporations, that are, you know, that are scared of that. It's, it would be an enormous transformation. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? When you talk about corporatist welfare, these export industries that, that I guess are, are you know, the legacy of an economic policy that Japan followed for decades, right? And, I mean, when you talk about corporatist welfare, are you talking about corruption? Are you talking about subsidies, you know, some different kinds of government protections, things like that? How, how exactly does it work, and what would have to be unwound for this to be something significant? Okay, so one thing you have 
in Japan is basically uh, judges have made it very clear that, and regulators have made it very clear that no one's going to do any hostile takeovers in Japan. So you don't have what you had in America in the 80s, which is the threat of hostile takeovers, uh, which it was probably the biggest revolution in corporate governance in America. In Japan, the government stomps every Gordon Gecko that, that comes near. And so uh, what you have is a lot of um, companies that are barely profitable, that have a lot that don't do a lot of the things they could do to improve productivity, and there's no threat that anyone's going to that there's going to be any punishment for that. And um, you have a lot of companies that um, have been called zombies by researchers, like Takeo Hoshi is the most famous guy who's done research on this. Uh, zombie companies are kept alive via cheap loans from banks, and they have very close relationships with the banks. They have cross shareholdings with the banks, and then basically. The government backstops these banks, and the banks keep lending to weak companies. This is one channel. Another channel is just the fact that you have you know, a, a closed economy, an economy that has lots of non-tariff barriers, regulatory barriers, and, um, and natural barriers like language barriers. And you have a lot of companies that serve the domestic market and basically compete only with each other but not with foreign companies, uh, and they have very poor corporate governance. But those, but those companies provide... Uh, lifetime, not not lifetime employment necessarily, because occasionally they do have to fire people. So it's not ironclad, but it's pretty close. I mean, most people work for one company for their entire life, and your pay goes up as you get older. And in addition to that, you have a huge number of family businesses. Uh, lots and lots and lots of families just survive on these businesses from generation to generation. In fact. You have so many family businesses that a large number of Japanese men who get married change their name to their wife's last name in order to take over the wife's family business. It's just a huge sort of pillar of the middle class is these small family businesses. Of course, they don't grow at all, and they're not very efficient, but they provide, I guess, you know, dignity, and they provide um, sort of economic security to a lot of people in Japan. They, they anchor a broad Japanese middle class so those are those are several channels. Those are several things that structural reform would put in danger. Structural reform would mean that big chains would come in and threaten all these family businesses, a bit like Wall Street destroyed Main Street in America. And the zombie companies would be cut off. They would have to you know, use their cash they're sitting on. They would have to make investments or die or consolidate. You'd have you know, threats of takeovers and, and things like that. So that's real structural reform would mean this immense disruption, even, you know, very akin to what happened to us in the 80s, but even bigger. You'd see inequality rise. You'd see insecurity rise. These businesses that people regarded as these eternal institutions of their eternal family would just be gone in an instant. And um, I think a lot of people are, are scared of that. Can I just chip in? Because, that, I mean, that does sound like a really interesting comparison to what's going on now in the U.S. as well, because we're hearing a lot about zombie companies coming along in the U.S. on account of the cheap credit and inequality rising um, regardless. So how do you reconcile those two facts? I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's, it seems to be a pretty common phenomenon to see after a large financial crisis, uh, banks, especially banks who have just been bailed out, sitting on a lot of cash, not lending it out a lot, Beyond that, I'm not really I'm not really sure about zombie companies in the United States. I haven't seen a lot about that, but I, I I do you know everything I've seen suggests that it's just a lot easier for a company to fail in America. It's a lot easier for a company to get taken over 
in America, we saw a rise in, we saw two big rises in inequality, one in the 80s, which, which was correlated with skills. You saw a, a skills gap, sort of a gap between the upper and lower middle classes. Those, our middle class sort of divided into two in the 80s. The more recent explosion in inequality was almost all driven by the very top, you know, 1% or 0.1%. And a lot of that had to do with the rise of, of finance and, uh, and the rise of capital income. So I think but that earlier burst that you see in the 80s followed deregulation, the rise of takeovers and private equity, sort of the, uh, you know, lots of increased foreign competition, globalization, the end of, of, you know, lifetime employment at American companies. You saw, and I think that the 80s were, were really the big time that you saw that. And I think that's what Japan, and Japan has been undergoing some of that since Koizumi, but not nearly as dramatically as what we went under, we underwent uh, after Reagan. And so I think that if there were real structural form, it would look more like a supercharged version of the of the eighties rise in inequality, not the more recent one that's based on finance. I don't think Japan is going to be financialized anytime soon. Sounds but like in, in that sense, saying, like if you've got structural um, reforms that are focused on increasing productivity on the domestic front, I mean, where where is that productivity going to be focused? I mean, where is where are the where are the lacking sort of areas? I mean, apart from like big. Um, kind of the industries that we can think of uh, over here in the West, uh, intangible um, social media, internet startups, technology firms, all of which seem to trend, have one common theme, which is they take very large companies of lots of em- lots of employees and reduce those employees to just a handful. Right. Structural reform exactly. would presumably just encourage that in, in Japan. And is that even what you need? Well... What's interesting is that, yeah, we've had so many companies go from these enormous army-sized workforces to small, lean workforces, but you've also seen the number of companies increase in America. I mean, our unemployment has gone up somewhat, but it hasn't gone up hugely. And interestingly, we have a higher percentage of working-age adults employed in formal employment than Japan does, even after you know companies shed their massive workforces and became lean and blah, blah, blah. So what must have happened was a lot of small company, a, a lot of new companies, differentiated industries, uh, new players and whatever emerged uh, to employ those people because we still employ more of our working age population than Japan. So then in terms of where the productivity gains would come from in Japan, part of it would come, I mean, there, there's a lot of well-known stuff Japanese companies often have very inefficient uh, business practices. They'll uh, they'll put stuff on electronic records and then have people hand copy it onto paper. They will have uh, very Byzantine sort of organizational structures within the company. Sometimes they'll pay some old people to sit around and do nothing. That's uh, that's fairly common. There'll be long, you know, very difficult sort of internal bureaucratic hurdles to get anything done at companies. So nobody so that stifles people's initiative to, to do stuff. It's not always easy to see the exact sources of low productivity. I mean, uh, there's sort of this puzzle in Canada where you have firms with a bit lower productivity than America, and people have been trying to figure out for a very long time why that's true. It's not, it's not very easy to tell all the time. But, but there's I, a I lot of well-known things I don't see how higher productivity, I mean, at the moment you're, you're paying people to effectively do nothing. Is that because there's a sort of saturation issue with how far, how productive this country can get, especially when it's so, well, especially now after the whole nuclear crisis, still dependent on, on resources, in which case, I mean, having been to Japan for the first time in my life last year, 
I just found it amazing how focused they are on recycling and general efficiency and, and in terms of energy consumption and all that sort of stuff that we in the, in the West are very wasteful with. They seem far more efficient, as if it's very mindful to them. Oh, they absolutely are. Government productivity, that, that would, uh, the government runs you know, the trash recycling business and things like that. They, they burn their trash, which is something we really need to do. Uh, government productivity in Japan is a lot higher than in America, at least. I don't know about Europe. Right. So I'm, I'm talking about corporate you know, and, and business uh, private sector productivity here. I don't really know about the government side of things. In terms of is Japanese productivity hindered by a lack of natural resources, that's a very interesting question to which I don't know the answer. I, I really don't know. Actually. No, it's kind of interesting from the way you describe it. I guess you could see why structural reform is, is so difficult because the kinds of displacements that are necessary aren't just about, I guess, breaking the corporatist welfare system that you described. It would also just lead to massive economic chaos, at least in the short run. So if you're a politician, uh, you're not going to get a lot of credit for what just happened. Maybe 10 to 15 years from now, somebody will thank you for raising the potential growth rate. But that's after you've been voted out of office, or at least if politics there works the way it does here. Exactly. And, and you know, I mean, even if you're just purely altruistic politician, you just care about the people. Right now, Japan has 30,000 suicides a year. And a lot of those are middle-aged men. A lot of those are middle-aged men who lose their jobs. And so there's this big fear that if you have this economic dislocation, restructuring, suddenly everyone's in danger of losing their jobs. Suddenly, you just have lots of people having to switch jobs, which is something almost no Japanese person has experience with at the at the high levels, then you're, th- there's the fear that you're going to see tens of thousands of people killing themselves. I mean, there's really this fear that, that people will die. I mean, a lot more people than died in any of America's wars uh, in the recent years. That example, sounds to me I mean, like an argument the, against structural reform. I mean, that sounds to me like we've got a pretty sort of nice socialistic system at the moment where everybody, by means of a corporatist uh, layer in, in the distribution of, of income, uh, is helping keep people, you know, it, with a pur- you know, it's giving them a purpose and, and some sort of something to do, even if it's not very meaningful on a, on a G- GDP level. Exactly. You know, when I was in Japan in 2011, just after the earthquake and nuclear accident, and there was, you know, and all, all, a lot of those signs, the neon signs were dark. It was really weird to be in Tokyo at that point. I saw armies of security guards in white gloves, and they were all old men, and they were standing outside businesses just being security guards, waving by cars on the street. Just these just huge numbers that I've never seen before since. What that was was companies would put their older workers on half pay temporarily or a third pay. Uh, and employ them as security guards in a country that has perfect security already. Hmm. That and and that was a very dramatic illustration of, you know, how much these these companies try to take care of people. You know, structural reform would mean that you you had to you only had one bottom line. Now you you, uh, you can't really take care of those people as much as you could. Yeah, I guess it's how do you how do you uh, how do you weigh? I mean, this is almost like uh, this almost becomes an ethical question as well. How do you weigh like current welfare? versus, um, you know, welfare in 15 to 20 years, that kind of thing. Exactly. But in terms Um, of standard of living, I mean, having been to Japan, again, for me, it's one of those real anomalies because, obviously, from an economic point of view, you just hear endless stories of depressing economic, you know, news. But when when you go there, and um, I know I, I was obviously only privy to certain obvious tourists, 
sort of sites, but you don't. It seems like a very high quality of, of living, and it and it doesn't. You know, I don't know why. Um, yes, of course, the infrastructure. Some of it is now aging, but it's still some of the best infrastructure in the world. And people have two issues, really, as far as I could see: that scarcity of land, not enough space, and uh, and an energy constraint. But other than that, I. I, I found I find it hard to reconcile that with the data. <laughs> I mean, okay, but but you know you won't see. So Japanese people value privacy highly. They're very ashamed of of material poverty. It's it's a very shameful thing. Nobody talks about it. Nobody you know everyone will hide their poverty extremely. I have seen some of it. I I don't think I've seen all of it. Poverty's gotten poverty and inequality have gotten a lot worse. Uh, since you know, since the uh, since 2000, basically uh, the middle class society. Yeah, Japan is now more unequal than most you know advanced most European countries of similar GDP. So like you know Germany, France. Uh, I think Japan is now more unequal than UK in in income terms, in terms of the Gini coefficient. But in terms of real poverty that you see, I mean. Land constraints are one thing, but I, you know, I, there's just so many people whose whole house is just, you know, a, a tiny closet with a little, you know, a tiny sink in the corner and a tiny like half bathroom, and they have to go to the public bath on, down the street. They have to walk down the street for the bath. They have nothing. They sleep on a mat on the floor, and they have a tiny little television set from like the 1980s, a cathode ray tube, you know, box. That looks like a that looks like you know one of those silly old televisions, and and that's what they have, and that's all their that's all their possessions. I mean, I've seen people like that, and and then on the other side, you have like some of the most conspicuous consp- consumption in in Asia, in in that part of the world. I mean, I know Japan, right? Asian. <laughs> so the rich people don't always get giant houses in Japan. What they'll get is just thousand dollar bottles of of alcohol. And things like that, and extremely extravagant luxury goods, you know, golf courses on top of buildings or something like that. Yeah, but in a, in a country that is that does have like um, physical constraints on how much land there is, surely right. perhaps that is a better way of of kind of displaying your wealth because there isn't enough, you know, accommodation to to give everybody a five bedroom house. It's just not conceivable in Japan. I don't think unless they you know invent no. clouding. Uh, floating cities or something. Right. But I mean, sure. On the other hand, you have seen, you have seen, even though Japan's economy hasn't done well, you've seen a doubling of average uh, floor space per person in Japan since uh, 1990. Um, And so now Japan is about equivalent to Germany in terms of how much floor space the average person has. So you've seen a large increase in that. So I wouldn't be too careful to conclude that because Japan is this, is this, you know, sort of land cramped country that everyone has to live in a tiny house. The amount of land is still very large compared to the amount of land used for housing. And so you've seen, you've seen this, this increase in people's house size, even during a bad economy. And so I think... Guys, let's turn to demographics. Actually, um, could I just chime in for one second there? Hi, it's Dan here. Hey. Uh, I just have one thought on the discussion about structural reform. It, we seem to be talking about it in very black or white levels, whether um, structural reform works or not. But certainly when you spoke to investors last year who were looking at Japan, it wasn't that they were expecting massive radical change in the Japanese economy. It was rather that instead of Japanese companies 
continuing to deliver atrocious returns for shareholders, it was that they would be slightly less bad than they had been in the past. And so, I mean, admittedly, the Japanese stock market is up 50% or more since then. But I mean, is is there scope for things moderately improving? And um, would that be enough rather than talking about sort of a, a change to a radical 1980s size, 1980s style restructuring of Japanese society? I mean, that's it. What we've seen is certainly consistent with that explanation. I mean, basically, there's this. Uh, a, a lot of people think that Japan, Japan's economy, they, they, they think about the export companies and they think the yen got expensive relative. So, so that made products from like Panasonic and Sony expensive relative to products from Samsung and the most direct competitors in Korea and Taiwan. So the idea is oh, yeah, this, you know. Money printing by the BOJ will weaken the yen. That will pump up the profits of exporters, uh, which are you know a lot of the companies we invest in and trade anyway. If we're foreigners, and so the foreigner foreign investors might have thought, well, that's going to just mechanically pump up Japanese profits. In fact, you do see a huge terms of trade boost to the uh, to the profits of Japanese export companies whenever the yen weakens. Toyota's profit goes way up, and so there's this idea that. That it's just exchange rate policy. I, I think that's what a lot of uh, foreign investors were expecting, but that's just speculation on my part. I uh, that's my guess. We're gonna. I want to. We're gonna talk a little bit more um, about the weakening of the yen um, and and also about what's happening with um, Japanese government bonds in a minute. But while we're still here on the issue of structural reform, one last issue to talk about, and it's a pretty big one, is demographics. Noah, you've been following this for a little while, and Izzy and I last week both had posts on this, on female labor force participation rates. I wrote about it in Japan. Izzy covered sort of a, a wide breadth of um, advanced economies. And for our listeners who, who don't know the situation here, essentially in the last three decades or so, the gap between the labor force participation rates between men and women uh, has shrunk quite a bit. Uh, it's shrunk a lot in advanced economies, but it's only shrunk a little bit in Japan, and what you're seeing now is that in a country where the workforce declines every year, you still have women, even as they're increasingly as well-educated, if not better educated than the men, starting to work a little bit in their early and mid-20s, and then by their late 20s and early 30s, they drop out of the workforce to have kids, and then when they return later on to the workforce, um, it's still a much small, at a much smaller rate than the men, but it's also it's also to part-time work, and their career prospects are essentially shot by then. And so one plank of Abenomics is to increase the female labor force participation rate by increasing child care provisions and then trying to get companies to hire more women in corporate boardrooms. So I guess my question, though, is this. The economic benefits of something like this actually working would be huge. But again, I, I want to ask about the institutional and, in this case, the cultural barriers to it actually happening, whether it's just different gender norms, outright sexism, or more of a political issue. I mean, what, what's your take on whether or not this is a realistic possibility? Uh, in terms of women, I've thought about this a lot, uh, and I know a lot of people in Japan who do research on this. My friend Renge Jibu is one of the, the you know prominent researchers who's written like a pretty famous book about, you know, Japan needs national child care and, uh, you know, gender norms need to change, things like that. So I've been thinking about this for a while. I think that Japan is not more sexist than the United States. Well, okay, maybe, uh, inherently, inherently, okay? I think that if you go back to the 1960s, 
uh, America was probably a more sexist place than Japan at that point. So I don't think it's this sort of enduring, eternal feature of Japanese culture. Uh, I think that it used to be, they used to be a, probably a little less sexist than us. We underwent this massive change. Uh, and you have to look at it and say, why did, why did America and, and other countries in the West, at least America, why did we undergo this massive change? Was it, was it cultural change? I mean, a lot of people attribute it to feminism, women's liberation, and other political social movements. Some economists have said, okay, no, what it really was, was global competition and deregulation of companies in the 80s and 90s that forced companies to hire the most productive workers for the cheapest price, which meant hiring women. And that's what really, that's what really cracked the glass ceiling in America, to the extent that it's been cracked. I mean, we still have some uh, sure. stuff there. And, but, you know, hiring, hiring uh, women who've had kids... Things like that. There's this one perspective that says that unless Japan gets that big structural reform that I was talk talking about before, it's not really going to get women into the workforce very well. Uh, then again, you have Europe, where I think that getting women into the workforce was uh, was more of a more of a top down thing, more of something government made people do. And I don't really know enough about that. But in terms of Japanese female participation in the workforce. You see, you know, their their participation rate is about sixty percent. America's is maybe seventy. Their wage gap is women earn, I think, about seventy percent of men. I think in America it's a little over eighty. I, I could be getting these numbers wrong. These are just off the top of my head. The gains are there. The gains are there. Um, it's not going to be an enormous transformation. It would raise if you if you got women's participation up. To American levels, it would raise GDP. I, I, I saw the numbers on this at one point. You know, ten percent, uh, maybe fifteen percent, something like that. It would be it would be a good thing to do. It would be a very important thing to do. And I think it would. A lot of women are unhappy with the way things are, and with the way their family lives are, and a lot of men are unhappy with the way that their family lives are uh, right now. But I think that. Um, you see, I, 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 as a woman, <laughs> I have to yeah. say, that what really gets me when you, whenever you talk about female participation, participation rates is this idea that the work that women do outside of the monetary, you, you know, dollar-yen world is somehow val valueless and not a contribution to GDP. And right. see, I, I find that very strange because... Um, if a woman's not in a job in the city or wherever, it doesn't mean she's not working and providing value. Uh, that helps to contribute to a better standard of life. Sure. Yeah, and, and that's, that's one more reason why if you measure GDP correctly, if you measure the value of home production, as they call it in economics, you would certainly see even less gains to be made here. There are, some, there are really some gains. I mean, a lot of women will sit around... Um, at home, sort of, uh, you know, doing, uh, just re-cleaning the house and, you know, just doing wasteful stuff or just fussing over their kids way too much or there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, wasted home production too that you see uh, a lot of people, um, I, I even heard uh, stories of women not purchasing uh, drying machines because that, that would give them less to do at home. But those are just that's just anecdotes, and I agree. I agree with you. 
But that, that's but the I, same argument as, you know, the invention of the Hoover helped to, you know, create so much extra time that brought women into the workplace in the first place. So Telling got, people what kind of work they have to do is slavery. And telling women, this is the work that you shall do, and men, you do all the other kinds of work in the world, and a woman, you know, no matter what kind of advanced degree you have, no matter how smart you are, no matter how ambitious you are, you are now a housekeeper. I mean, that's, that sucks, and I think a lot of women are very sad about that. My own mother uh, was extremely smart, smarter than my dad, uh, could have gone far. She came from a traditionalist family, traditionalist values, and, and was a housewife for seven years uh, to raise me and my sister. And I think that decision, she always regretted, and she was always kind of sad about that. So maybe I'm a little biased from my personal family experience. Um, but telling, telling women, no matter how smart you are, go be a housekeeper – that's a, that's a terrible waste of talent. It's a it's just a um, I think it makes people it makes people very unhappy. It gives people a sense of futility and purposelessness. And yes, home production work is valuable, but when you didn't choose to go be a housekeeper as your career, that's that's not going to be fulfilling. I suspect you guys aren't aren't all that far apart on this. And the issue is is, is you <laughs> make a great not. point Probably about not. measuring this, but I, it's also I guess an issue of fairness and and yeah. sort of knocking down you know. The well, there's, there's also the idea that if you enter the workforce and you you end up you know contributing to further asset bubbles and and the fact that you have families dependent on two incomes as the equilibrium adjusts to a two income uh, model and therefore it becomes harder then to leave the labour force to have kids if you do want to and then that only contributes. I mean, I think that's a vicious cycle for the demographics. Um, I mean, really, you need women to have the choice to have children or to work. And, and, and from what I read in the Magnus note, he was seemingly saying that there isn't the support systems, the, the support systems that are necessary in Japan to facilitate that sort of child um, uh, rearing and work are just not there. That's right. In, in Japan, it's an either-or choice. Uh, really, if you are going to go have a career as a woman and ha- like have a really good career, you're not going to be able to have kids or at least not going to be able to have more than one kid but possibly not going to be able to have kids at all. A lot of people, you're, you're forcing, as economists would say, you're forcing the choice onto the extensive margin. It's like forcing people to choose whether to work or be unemployed instead of how much to work. The, the fact that people can't have an interior solution, as we say, the fact that people can't, you women can't easily work and have kids. Maybe some women stay home and have the kids, but then the number of women that choose never to have the kids because they have because you know there's just no way to choose both at once and career is important to them that's reducing fertility if you look at rich countries only if you restrict your samples to rich countries where there's not many farmers uh, and farm families what you see is a positive relationship between women's economic participation women's participation in the formal workforce and fertility you see some of the highest fertility in developed countries is in places like France and Sweden and the United States and um, New Zealand, where women have very high rates of participation. The lowest fertility that you see is in countries like Japan, Korea, Germany, Spain, Italy, uh, and places like that that have very low female participation. And I think that this forcing women to choose between kids and work is the is probably the reason for that. And uh, what about uh, what about immigration? Because one of the reasons that um, female labor force participation uh, is stressed so much in terms of how to 
uh, alleviate um, the declining workforce is that there's this almost defeatist attitude about any attempt to liberalize immigration policy. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. I mean, um, Japan lets in more immigrants than it used to. Uh, go, to go to Tokyo. It's an increasingly internationalized city. Um, there's a lot more Chinese immigrants. There's a lot more Indian immigrants, especially in elite occupations. But the, the, in terms of the sheer value of numbers... I think that Japan took a look at the European countries, which were the, the most similar countries to it in the world. Uh, it took a look at places like Germany, the UK, and France. It took a look at the large-scale immigration that happened there and sort of the results on balance of that, and it said, no thanks. The, there was never any real question of becoming like America, uh, a complete society of immigrants, or even like New Zealand and Australia and Canada. There was never a question of Japan becoming like that. It was... If they did large-scale mass immigration, it was going to be it was going to look more like Germany, France, or the UK, and um, and I think that they said that that mass the the, the level of of low-skilled mass immigration necessary, you know, to 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 increase their population by a lot was is something that they didn't want to do. And uh, isn't there a part and, of it in that a lot of the low-skilled labor is sort of necessary for service? Uh, service sector and uh, everything from care care for the elderly and and teaching and well teaching a service but you know what I mean um, and that can't necessarily be provided for by foreigners in in the in the sort of Japanese mentality. I don't know about that because I mean, I mean I, I'm I'm speaking very generically but like I have there is obviously this perception that the Japanese are not forthcoming to having foreigners in their, ha in their homes as much as they... I mean, they would rather have robots than, than people of different cultures who don't understand all their cultural quirks. That is something that people have said, but I've never heard anyone in Japan say that. that um, which is so very I, interesting. I don't know if that's... I don't know how big a deal that is. But I do know that labor is... At, at Low-skilled uh, service labor is pretty fungible. I mean... There's no reason you can't have foreigners clerking all the um, all the convenience stores and the and you know cooking at restaurants and stuff like that. I don't think there's there's zero Japanese cultural barrier toward foreigners uh, low skilled foreign laborers doing that. And mm -hmm. then so if J Japanese people want someone Japanese to do things like you know take care of their kids or whatever, it's not too difficult to just shift the low skilled labor around. I had um. One question about culture I wanted to throw at you know if we still have time just to uh -huh. just to come back to um the abonomics i mean there, there's been a lot of debate about what happens if abonomics doesn't work, and sort of there's that school of thought that perhaps the authorities could lose control of interest rates of the currency, and then we could have some sort of um, big debt crisis um, in Japan. And so I guess the question, and, and it always comes back to the this idea of the Japanese as very loyal savers, that they'll always stand behind the government and rally round. So we don't need to worry about bond yields going crazy. So I guess the question is, do you think that the Japanese, if there is some sort of potential for crisis, do you think that they would rally round and continue to buy bonds just to support the government? Uh, I do not think that patriotism is a big um, motivating factor uh, for Japanese purchases of Japanese government bonds. Uh, that is something a lot of people have said, and I followed up on that by asking a bunch of Japanese people about that, and I get a lot of funny looks in Japan. I've never heard a single person say, we have to buy bonds to support the country. Uh, this is not like you know war bonds in World War II kind of situation. I think that what you instead have 
is home bias because people don't know where else to invest. They don't have information. Individual savers don't have information. And individual savers don't have experience investing overseas. They don't have the. They don't have a lot of um, brokers who can help them. The um, and so that's very interesting, though. That, I always got the impression because of the whole Mrs. Watanabe trade that actually the Japanese were very savvy on that front. Oh, exactly. As soon as as soon as they thought that there was as soon as there was a sort of well known thing you could do, you know, back in the middle of the two thousands, you could. You could borrow in, in, in yen and you could then go lend in like Australian dollars or Brazilian dollars or something like that. You saw a big carry trade there. There was no hesitation on the, the part of Mrs. Watanabe. She had no patriotism. She would instantly do a uh, carry trade. And so I don't think there's that. I think, oh, by the way, right now, household savings rates in Japan have dropped and are actually below American household savings rates. You don't have these huge you know, sort of like inflows of saving from the household sector, you have a lot of it's just corporate savings and pension funds, you know, doing sort of automatic savings for people. Those pension funds and those corporations and banks as well have been leaned on very heavily by the Ministry of Finance. What, you're see what you've seen in Japan, the reason for domestic, um, the reason you have so much uh, domestic investment in Japanese bonds is just financial repression. It's classic techniques of, of the government just leans on companies, pension funds, and banks. And uh, there's whether or not they can continue to, whether or not they can do Abenomics and not experience a spike in interest rates, I think will depend on the strength of that financial repression, which is something for, which is very difficult for outsiders to predict or gauge. That's my personal prediction. To what degree was there um, any sort of repatriation of, uh, you know, Foreign-held investments as a result of Abenomics. Um, I don't know. I'd have to look at the numbers on that. One last uh, topic before we um, before we finish with uh, with this discussion about Japanese government bonds, uh, Noah. You want to just talk about um, Japan's trade relationship with uh, the rest of the world, and in particular with China. So, on the one hand, Abe has signaled that he wants to move forward with. Um, talks on the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Um, and then at the same time, there's also this, this big article in Foreign Policy this month that just hit yesterday about how Japan's relationship with China is a kind of mitigating influence um, on Abe, but on both countries, really, in terms of, in, in terms of their own kind of cultural um, and political clashes. Uh, do you want to just give us your thoughts on, on how that's evolving? Um, in terms of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think that would be a big step toward real structural reform. I think that you know farming uh, um, is a is a big deal there. But I also think there's also um, we've been demanding that they lower non-tariff barriers to trade, and that would go part of the way toward sort of ending this this corporatist welfare state I was talking about earlier and changing Japan's social model because you'd be exposing a lot more industries to foreign competition. Uh, so I think that that's one of the sort of big structural form things you could do that, that I was talking about earlier. In terms of trade relations with China, I know that, I mean, Japan has a lot of trade relations with China. I think that this would mean that Japan will not do, will not be aggressive toward China. The question is how much, I think it's, it's the ball on this is entirely in China's court. I'm not an expert in this field at all. Um, but, but it seems to me that Japan never had any intent toward making any aggressive moves toward China. They are... You know they have those those islands that China claims, uh, the Senkakus, and they've been a some some right wing Japanese politicians 
have been a little more vocal about saying like these are ours, but Japan has always controlled those, and America recognizes Japan's control over those. So that's not really much of a change. It's entirely in, in terms of relations with China. It's all I think it's all driven by China. The idea that Japan could uh, change its stance toward World War II or not go visit politicians could not go visit that shrine, blah blah blah. I think there's just very little uh, that they can do on the margin to change relations with China. I think Chinese anger toward Japan. My guess is that it's something that's sort of like um, you know, there's a lot of domestic Chinese anger toward Japan. Uh, from historical stuff, and the government allows that to be expressed more or less for the Chinese government's own reasons, and that's what's going to drive any sort of bad relations between the two. It's all China. It says my instinct. Okay. Um, I don't think and Japan then... was ever going to do stuff to, to jeopardize their relationship with China intentionally. Um, but you have to realize, in, J- in Japanese politics, there, Japan is not a hive mind, and Japanese politicians will do what they want to do and there's and no one controls them you know so so right wingers go and they they make speeches about how these islands are ours no come near these islands and you know um visit the visit the shrine the asakuni shrine in tokyo and um and there's really nothing people can do to stop them there's no there's for, i mean first of all japan has less party discipline within a political party than in america but second of all there's just no people assume that japan is like you know, some sort of unified consciousness, but that's never been even remotely close to true. Uh, so you have all these these right-winger people, and the mainstream of Japanese society is not with them, and even then the mainstream Japanese politicians are not with them, and Abe is not with them even. But there's just nothing that you can do to stop a guy like Toru Hashimoto or uh, Shintaro Ishihara and these guys from, from doing what they're going to do, or or conservative guys within the LDP. So it's very, very you know, individualistic, but people from the outside don't see Japan as a whole bunch of, like, squabbling individuals, but inside it, that's what it really is. Great. And last topic, and Izzy, I think you're going to like this one, too. Noah, you had a really interesting back and forth with Paul Krugman and, I think, Nick Rowe on what's happening with uh, Japanese interest rates uh, in the wake of Abenomics. And I think the jumping-off point to all this was something that Richard Ku said that I found really interesting, which was that uh, right after Abenomics essentially started, Japan enjoyed the best of all worlds because inflation expectations went up. Foreigners were buying a lot of Japanese equities, so the stock market went up, but Japanese domestic investors weren't quite convinced on it yet, so they didn't leave the Japanese government bond market, so interest rates also stayed low. Um, that changed a little bit later, and... I think your point was that actually rising rates, whatever it is that's causing them, can be really dangerous because Japanese has such a high debt-to-GDP ratio, or just in general it has, it has quite a lot of debt. Um, and so uh, it becomes an issue of, well, uh, at what point does this get so bad that it actually does stifle growth? Um, and how does Japan manage that really tricky terrain between higher inflation expectations, reflating the economy, growing again, and yet keeping inflation ex- uh, and keeping interest rates low so that, I guess, people don't get nervous and it stifles the economic recovery before it can actually do anything. Do you want to just give us your sense of, of why you think um, that higher interest rates, even if they are driven by expectations of a better economy, would be a big problem? And sort of give us your sort of overall view on, on that, because I, I don't think I've, I've quite done it justice. 
Right. So what Nick Rowe was saying is that if you see interest rates rise, and, and Krugman agrees with, with Rowe, and, and he's right, which is that if you see interest rates rise, there could be two reasons. Number one, people are essentially just abandoning bonds, Japanese bonds for you know foreign bonds or something like that because they, they fear inflation. Um, and, and then the other possibility is that they're abandoning bonds for stocks because they think the economy is going to recover. They didn't, of course, put that in those terms because those guys are economists. But if you're talking to finance people, that's what you would really talk about. The question is why? Why are people? If if Japanese investors do start, uh, you know, exiting Japanese government bonds, what are they putting their money in instead? Is it the Japanese domestic economy because they think there's going to be a recovery? That's good. Is it foreign bonds and they're basically jumping ship and getting their money out of Japan? Uh, that's bad. My point was that even if that, uh, that's the point that Nick Rowe and, and Paul Krugman had made. My point is that, okay, even if you have the, the quote-unquote good scenario, this, you have a government that has a huge stock of debt that it needs to make interest payments on. As people abandon Japanese government bonds, interest rates go up. Um, that increases the amount of interest you have to pay uh, every you know, month or whatever. Now, if you knew what that interest rate was going to be uh, going forward, so in other words... Suppose that growth goes up by 5% and interest rates go up by 4%. Okay. Um, well, then that's, that, that should be fine in principle because that just allows you to borrow to cover your increased interest payments and pay it off with future growth. But the point is if people are very uncertain about the growth but very certain that the interest rate thing is going to persist, you could have a sort of a spiral we, I mean, where, where people then do the bad thing and send their money overseas or, uh, or you know, or even try to hold it in cash or something. So then, um, I guess the. So why did Krugman disagree? What was? Well, no, Krugman didn't really disagree. the The point is that um, the point is it all depends on whether or not uh, Japanese investors are lured away. In the end, it depends on whether Japanese investors are lured away from Japanese government bonds by the Japanese domestic economy or whether they're driven away from Japanese government bonds toward foreign bonds or something like that. If people, uh, abandon, the, um, if people abandon Japanese government bonds because, of, because they think there's going to be really high inflation or because they think uh, you know, the, the government might choose to default, then that's a, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy and the government is then forced to either default or, you know, uh, print so much money that you that you do cause inflation. Yeah, I think um, Krugman's response was that so long as inflation expectations are also rising, that all you need to look at is expected real rates rather mm -hmm. than uh, what's happening with nominal rates. But this is also this ties back into something else that Ku said that I thought was fascinating, which is essentially that the Japanese central bank, the BOJ, should. Yes, commit to getting back to 2%, and he did say that the decrease in the yen had helped exports and could continue helping exports, but that it should make an absolutely resolute call to not allow any kind of overshooting, not even a minuscule amount of overshooting, because that would both reflate the economy a little bit and help exporters, but at the same time, uh, it would keep people from fleeing bonds because inflation expectations wouldn't rise by too much. This is sort of this is this falls I think a little short of what Krugman has called for for our economy and what certainly the market monitors have called for for our economy, which is that we should overshoot. If we had a period of deflation or we had a period of below target inflation, then you should overshoot on the other side and get back to a, 
a trend level. Well, Koo is saying that's ridiculous because of all these factors that I think Noah just uh, just elucidated. So, anyways, I, I think it's I think it's all something fascinating to watch. But it also goes to show that sort of the situation in Japan um, isn't always necessarily all that comparable to to what's happening in the U.S. Oh no, it's certainly not. It's certainly not directly comparable to what's happening in the U.S. Um, the so so I don't really recall Ku's argument in in detail. Um, it, what you want in Japan is you want negative uh, real rates. You want um, you want uh, basically that because um, that first of all that erodes the the debt that erodes uh-huh. the real size of the debt. Yep. And um, if you can if you can increase inflation expectations without increasing nominal rates a bunch, then you get negative real rates. And so the question of whether you look at real rates or, or Nominal rates is more just talking about the language in which you express these things. Japan wants negative real rates. You want to increase inflation expectations uh, while keeping while keeping nominal rates relatively low to force real rates to be negative uh, in order because first of all that'll stimulate investment and second of all that will erode debt, um, the large stock of of debt that in in as much as large stocks of debt, public or private. Are bad for an economy, and I don't. Uh, which Ku says, and I don't think it's well understood how that process works. But if they are bad for an economy, then you want to erode them with inflation. Um, it's like, the, which is basically a fancy macroeconomic way of forcing bondholders to take haircuts. So I think that 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 really is what Japan wants to do. You really do want to have negative real rates there. So Paul Krugman's certainly not wrong, and Nick Rowe's not wrong either. I don't think it was really an argument. It's more just uh, speaking things in different languages sometimes. But I think everyone agrees that that's what Japan needs to do. Um, if Japan suffers large-scale capital flight, that will throw a wrench into that. Whether that's happening or not, you know, can you see the beginning of large-scale capital flight? It might be difficult to see, and the, the central bank might get too jittery if it sees rates rising. It might, and I think this is Rose's point, the central bank might make a mistake. The central bank, the Bank of Japan might say, oh, rates are rising because there's capital flight, when in fact rates are just rising because of expectations of economic recovery. That might cause the central bank to get cold feet and, you know, and taper too early and renege on its promises of, of infinite quantitative easing, which might then re, you know, send the economy back into, you know, recession. That's uh, that a lot, basically monetarists fear that this could happen. If the central bank makes that mistake of mistaking a recovering economy for capital flight, that makes does that make sense? sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that it makes does. perfect sense. Uh, that's great. Um, so. All right, uh, I'm out of questions. Yeah. Izzy, you got anything else for uh, for Noah? Uh, no, I, I, the last point was very good, and um, I think we've covered most of most of the whole subject matter. <laughs> All right, good place to end then. Uh, Noah, we've taken a lot more of your time than we. Uh, than we asked for, but we really appreciate it. This has been great. So thanks it's okay. for being here. I'm, I'm very happy, and uh, just anytime.